All right, for episode three, I got my good friend and former boss, Joel Lonka. Uh, first teamed up with Joel uh, back in 2015, working at an ad agency here in here in Denver. And now he's still in the branding advertising game, but uh, he's gone down into the, the, the food world and he's launched his own brand of uh, flavored garlics that it's called Prohibited Provisions. Um, the garlics are the first product. Uh, he's got some big aspirations for it, but uh, he's somebody who I always go to for a lot of you know, to bounce ideas off of and to get his take on what's happening in marketing, advertising, um, and help me even fine tune my own ideas and, and concepts a little bit better. Uh, I owe a lot to him for, for him helping me kind of rein my thinking in or how I look at problems and how I, how I approach creating and strategizing for whatever that the, the task might be. Uh, but I'm, I'm coming back. I'm making it a, a point to start pumping out more content on the regular, more episodes. I got some people lined up, some interviews with uh, food founders and uh, different people in the startup community here in Denver that I'm super amped to, to, to share those conversations with you and introduce you to them. So please subscribe. Uh, give me the five stars. Give me a review. Hit me up. Uh, direct message me. Text me. Uh, email me. Uh, whatever works, give me your feedback on what I could, might be doing better, what you like to hear, what you, you know, uh, I really enjoy hearing what you guys are getting out of this. So without any more delay, please welcome my guest, Joel Lanka. All right. So I've got Joel Lanka here. Uh, Joel and I met a, f- a couple years back, uh, maybe I think three going on three years now when I came to Denver and started an internship over at, uh, at Factory Design Labs, which is an ad agency here in Cherry Creek. Um, but Joel's the guy I kind of always, well, he was my supervisor and every day reported to him and got to work on some cool stuff and kind of really figure out what I want to do and what I didn't want to do. So Joel spent a lot of time in the ad world, branding world, um, and now he's set in a new adventure in the food world with his brand of flavored garlics prohibitive provisions. Um, we had all those different things, but Joel, thanks for coming. I know we've talked about this for a while. Um, so thanks for being here, man. Yeah. Great to be here. And thanks for the compliments. I, yeah, so appreciate it. Let's, let's go back. Um, I like to like frame it kind of who you are, where you've been. You've been here as a professional in Denver, but you've also been in Chicago. Um, where are you from and what made you get to the line of work that you're in? Yeah, um, I'll try to make this as quick as possible and give the short version, but yeah, I, you're right. I've been in Denver for about four years. I spent another four years in Chicago, and before that, I would like to say given the high school rule and where you go to high school, I grew up in the Midwest as a genuine corn-fed Iowa boy, um, so originally from Iowa and headed to Chicago in the big city after college and started out in advertising. So I started out um, there working on some great brands and doing a traditional account advertising role. And for me, I kind of lacked the strategic thinking and aspect of advertising and branding. And so for me, I looked for that branding role and ended up finding a great consulting firm where in Chicago I spent about three years working on some really great brands um, from a brand strategy, new product innovation standpoint in Chicago. Um, going back to Iowa, you're the, you're technically the first person um, professionally I've interacted with here that's from Iowa in the, in the, now in the food game. First, I know a couple chefs here who are from Iowa and it seems like there's a lot of people, like, I mean, it's three, but um, that come from the Midwest, come from Iowa specifically, who are getting into the food game. And I mean, Iowa has, like you said, corn, like it might be corn, but the whole agriculture thing, there's definitely a food heritage to the state. Yeah, food is, you know, huge. Agriculture, obviously, um, is huge in Iowa as well. Um, And at the same time, I mean, like anywhere you go throughout the world, I feel like every place, the Midwest, um, if you're talking about the United States, the West Coast, the East Coast, the South, but then other countries as well, every place has their own food and culture, and the Midwest has that as well. And so for me, I would say 
my passion for food really started around high school time where, you know, for me, it was more of, I just had an innate um, interest in food and what I like to say and kind of what we'll probably end up getting to, I hope, um, in regards to why I started the brand and Prohibited Provisions is that, you know, it was a creative outlet for me. For some reason, I don't follow recipes. It's always come to me. I feel like almost someone who's creative in another sense, whether it's a writer or a painter. For me, cooking has always been creative, and I got into it just from having fun in the kitchen in high school. And for me, that's where food happened. It wasn't necessarily the cuisine that was around in Iowa, but at the same time, I still make those I think Iowa is a big comfort food as much as people give that credit to the South as well. You have a lot of really great comfort foods in the Midwest and Iowa has them as well. What, and you went to, um, you went to college out there too, right? You went to Iowa? Yeah. So I went, I went to the university of Iowa. I, we won't spend too much time on it, but I almost went in, um, I almost went to the West coast as a science major and thought about going to marine biology, but ended up uh, not going that path and um, went into as an open major to the University of Iowa and eventually found marketing. I don't know why, but it was probably a little bit more of the creative aspect of business or the potential for that that led me to it. And so I ended up going that route. I, I, I find it interesting. A lot of people don't that I know who are in marketing as professionals now they didn't really they don't have marketing degrees right, right away or maybe it wasn't their first their first inclination going into school uh, when I went to school I thought I wanted to be an attorney I wanted to be uh, go to law school um, that ended pretty quickly and I kind of found my way into political science and I thought I wanted to be into politics and I just realized one day I was like you know I like watching but I don't think I don't think that I think I could use whatever talents and passions I have in the private sector, creating more things that can get done faster. And I, like you said, it's marketing sounds more creative and, and, and whatnot. And for political science for me was the whole, uh, I call it like the business of people and all the variables and why people do things and this mix of anthropology and, and, and behavior and all this stuff. So I always find it interesting that people who end up going down the route of advertising and marketing do not necessarily always start off that way. Yeah, and, and for me, it was like, I mean, college for me, I it, I tell people if I had to do it over again, I'd go to the University of Iowa. It was an amazing Big Ten college experience, a huge university experience. You had the sports, and it also taught me how to be an adult <laughs> to a certain extent because there's a lot of temptations. But at the same time, you could get a really great education. And so as I started thinking about what I wanted to do and I went in as an open major because I had no clue what I wanted to do and I naturally gravitated towards marketing and business because it seemed right but as I've grown up I started entering more of a mindset of pursuing your passions and doing something that you love and I'd admit right now if I had the same mentality in college I probably would have pursued other things but for me as I was in my marketing, advertising roles, branding roles, once I got out of college and started developing skills, I eventually got to the point where I started thinking about what am I passionate about, what do I enjoy doing, and how can I combine those talents of what I've learned in the marketing and branding world and pair them with what I'm passionate about. And it's kind of, to a certain extent, led me to where I am today. When, and that's, again, the, the, we're gonna, get to that whole I mean there's so much to unpack with the with, with the food endeavors and it's super dope what going from college go to Chicago big market what was it like going from Iowa to like now one of the fourth fourth largest the largest city in the country in the advertising game what was that like for you um, as a young professional yeah, so it, I mean, it was an inter interesting transition in the sense of, one, just from a lifestyle standpoint of going from Chicago, well, one, Iowa to Chicago to Denver, which I would compare to, or it's more of, you know, going from more of a rural setting, which has its 
benefits and its perks and it's enjoyable in a certain way to the other end of the spectrum of a really big major global city to a certain extent it's not quite a new york but it's on the global map to a denver which i would put in the middle of things i'd agree and so obviously the advertising world the branding the marketing world in chicago much larger scale it's a bigger dance floor to a certain extent but there's a lot more options as well Versus when I moved out to Denver, it was a personal choice. You know, I really enjoyed Chicago. It's an amazing culture. I might even live there again someday. Like, I love the city and it'll always have a place in my heart. But I wanted the outdoors. I wanted to move out here. And when I moved out here, I moved out here without a job. And so from an advertising perspective of Chicago, a larger market, to what's here in the Colorado region. And when I was here four years ago, it was probably even less than it is now. But obviously, still at the same time, the industry itself is smaller than what it is in Chicago. And so it's a little bit more of a niche community, which is also great at a certain, to a certain extent in that you know, you know a lot of people in the industry and there's a lot of connections and it's not a sense of competition, but it's a more of not necessarily sharing ideas, but you have a pulse on what everyone's doing. And to a certain extent, I mean, it's, if you're looking for a job, it can be very competitive, but at the same time, there's a lot of amazing agencies, whether it's branding, whether it's traditional advertising, they do amazing, great work. And then also with the influx of all the new businesses that business that's coming into the front range of technology um, and what some might consider, you know, you have a lot of people from Silicon Valley moving out here in regards to businesses and a lot of talent coming out that it's always been a hub of consultancies, branding agencies, advertising agencies, but you're now actually getting the client side to a certain extent. You're getting those actual companies moving out here as well. It's not just consultancies. It's not just advertising agencies. You're actually getting companies with services and products that are moving out here as well. You know, I, I, people are going to hear me say this probably more times in the future, and I've said this on previous episodes. It's like, I think that there's something about the front range that I call it, there's probably a real term for it, but I always call it like socio-geographic DNA. And like, okay, yeah, it's super, <laughs> I know. But um, the whole pioneer aspect of this area, I think trickles down and kind of um, finds itself uh, living on in different aspects now. You know, back then, if you're coming from the East Coast and you've never seen giant mountains before the Midwest, and you, all of a sudden you get here, and you see these giant, the Rockies, it's going to be intimidating and it's going to be a little humbling, especially if the people you're traveling with, maybe you don't necessarily care for them. It's either it's you guys against nature and it's, you can either work as a team and create new things and try new things and keep persevering or go in it alone and see how you fare against the elements. Yeah, I, I think your comment on specifically the word and just from the world I come from of like picking out words like pioneering, I think is a great descriptor in regards to the culture and what's happening here and not even the business world. So if, you know, I have conversation with friends and people who move here all the time in regards to the culture and the front range and why people move out here. And I think pioneering is a great word because take it out of the business world, even just from a lifestyle perspective, majority of people that move here is you might get couples that move here together, but you get a lot of people who move out here that really don't know anyone or they might know one or two people. I know a lot of my friends and my friends groups um, as well. A lot of us didn't know many people. And I feel like a lot of people I talk to, it's the conversation of the front range here is a culture and a place that's unlike anywhere else in the United States and how friendly it is. And I think it's to that pioneering aspect of a lot of people move out here like taking a risk and they hear great things about the front range and Denver and the mountains and but it is a lot of people who you know they're moving out here without connections there is that sense of risk there's that sense of pursuing the idea of a different life a better life and it opens it up to a lot of friendly interactions, people being very open. And then I think that trickles into what's happening even in the business world now. You have a lot of companies moving out here, understanding the culture. And also to a certain extent, it's like if you're a company that moves here, 
there's a lot of people now that want to move to the front range. So you actually have, it's not just the talent pool around um, the front range and around Colorado, you also have the talent pool of individuals that want to move to the area. So you actually have a talent pool that's national. No, totally. And I know so many people will just get up and come here and again, not knowing too many people. I mean, even it kind of goes full circle when I came here for a uh, factory, when we got introduced, it's like, I came and visited when uh, two buddies and I had that app that we tried to get into a startup accelerator and we just kind of fell in love with this attitude of wanting to create things and, and try things and but being collaborative. I mean, I've lived in LA and LA is also has a creative, you know, I, I think it does have a pioneering mentality, but I don't think that's the right word for it. Um, but it's not the same in terms of how people work together. It's, I think it's a little bit more competitive than collaborative. Yeah, um, and it and it doesn't. I don't know. Coming here, I, I just felt like you get the best of the Southwest, the West, the Midwest, and even East Coast. I call it coastal collision, and it just all comes together at one place. Yeah, and, and I think every place I, you're getting a lot of. I mean, you think if you look at areas that have just blown up and have grown, whether it's from a business standpoint or just the overall trend in regards to people want to move into cities and live in a more um, culturally diverse environment and where things are going on in the sense of the American dream for most people is no longer the white picket fence in the suburbs. True, It's moving into the city and getting culture. So you're getting your hubs where it's a, well, Denver's growing in regards to <laughs> the cost of living, like most cities, but you're still getting a lot of people that are avoiding the Chicago's, the New York's, the San Francisco's that cost a lot of money. And you're finding your Austin's, your Denver's, um, your Portland's and places like that. And businesses are growing there as well. And so you're getting a lot of people who are wanting that culture, that atmosphere, but yet good jobs as well. That I will say, at the same time, I think LA gets a huge knock a lot of times, but at the same time, it has its own startup culture. And I actually think, you know, to a certain extent, I talk to friends about this quite a bit, but I would say LA for a long time has got a bad rap where it's kind of a dystopia that is transforming itself and it's actually gradually becoming more enticing for people to move there in the sense of it's always had this connotation of Hollywood and I'll be honest, superficial people. And my brother lives out there. He's my best friend and amazing people. But at the same time, it has a great startup community. Totally. That I, At the same time, I think what we're finding is you're having all these hubs. So whether it's L.A., whether it's Denver, the Front Range, whether it's Portland, Seattle, Austin, what's really interesting is you're getting all these cities with startup cultures creating, and it's a matter of which one do you want to be a part of, right? Each one has a personality, almost like a product does. So it's like you choosing to a certain extent what type of startup community you want to be a part of because I'll admit Silicon Valley is completely different than what the front range is from a personality standpoint versus possibly Seattle. Exactly. Uh, It's that's that's well said. And when I live in LA, I've got – it's it's you're right it's it's it gets a knock a lot and i think when i was there i might have knocked it myself but hindsight looking at it looking at all the different possibilities and you know we were lucky uh deuce and jack had a great when i was working for recess they had a great just grasp on what was happening in that community they're really ingrained themselves in it and i don't know i what i noticed is I, I, especially with the internet and, and, and how fast we communicate, whether it's through text, Instagram, Snap, you create these webs, right? So it's like, you know, the whole uh, degree of separation, it's gotten so much smaller because, okay, Joel's in Chicago. He knows uh, Susie who's in Chicago, but Susie knows Adam and Adam knows somebody. And millennials will like for lack of a better term, hook their friends up with contacts in a way that I, in a speed that I think has never been done before. So if Joel goes from Denver to Austin, he can reach out to Adam, Lisa, whoever. I know you have people that can introduce me before you know it. You're part of that ecosystem now, a lot easier than I think it was in the past. 
you're, I mean, you talking about that is tapping into a business idea that I probably won't ever pursue, but I think what you're describing right there on a very basic level is the future of recruiting and talent. Totally. It's only a matter of time before someone changes. Like I've been through the frustrations of you want to get a job at a really great company that's outside the startup world that's maybe more established, and you go through such a old-school, labor-intensive process, and I think the future is, at the end of the day, if you ever have worked at a company where it's done really well, your best employees that typically come in are recommendations. So at the end of the day, someone needs to create a business, whether it's an app or however it works, where recruiters and your internal organization Everything that comes through are recommendations. And at the end of the day, it'll make things more efficient. And so it's more of building a culture of you're making sure you're establishing those connections because that's how you get referrals. And it's already happening from wherever, but no yeah. one's no one's monetized it totally. to the way that it possibly could. I think you're right. I think about that. I think I think about that same thing about referrals, recommendations through trusted sources, even for travel. And I have an idea about that, about how to maximize travel plans, but I'm with you, man. I think that there is that is the future of recruiting because how many people have gotten a job from? You're right. I mean, that's how I got into factories. I knew someone. Yeah. Um, and going back to factory, when we were there, I mean, that's a great segue. Um, when we were at factory, we got to work on stuff that wasn't necessarily food related, but it was some really cool stuff. And I always say this, and I've told you this to your face, and I'll say it again: is what you helped me do was really understand high level thinking that I had the capability to do, but how to frame it, how to put it in buckets, and what questions to ask. So now, even when I pick apart my own ideas, I know not necessarily, it's okay if I don't have the answers right away. It's what questions am I asking myself about this product, this idea, what are the, what is the, what is the, rest of the market look like? What are the layers? So I always, I always give you that credit because it really helped me in that it helped me refine that passion and that capability. Yeah. Thank you. I, pre- I appreciate it. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, and you know, when we worked at factory, I mean, we worked on a lot of great lifestyle brands. And so what a lot of great lifestyle brands do just from the branding world is you do have that element of looking at the 20,000 foot view and really understanding, you know, what the benefit is of your brand, of your product, and how that works across all touch points, I feel is what a lot of lifestyle brands do. And I think lifestyle brands is a term that's overused a little bit too much, but the concept of what a lot of those brands have done, whether, I mean, it's Apple, it's the North Face, if, you know, you know, to a certain extent, I mean, it, it plays in the fashion world and it plays in the food world as well a lot more, is they do a really great job of it's not just about the product, it's not just functionality, but thinking about the 20,000-foot view and what's your purpose and what value are you bringing that's unique and different. No, to- yeah, totally. And I think there's a lot of brands who who actually, you know, are lifestyle brands, they don't realize it. Or and there's a lot of brands that think they're lifestyle brands and aren't. Um I think a lot more food brands are actually I guess you could argue a lot of them are lifestyle brands. There's certain types of kombuchas and coffees and you, I mean you name it, you go through our aisles and you'll find different things that really people use and they see them in their hands and it's part of like who they are when they're at Soul Cycle, when they're in their Lululemon, when whatever it is, that kind of I always see brands as like um, people look at brands subconscious like they're friends, right? So they want to be surrounded by brands that reflect in a lot of ways who they are. I like Tesla, I like Soul Cycle, I like other people who like these people. They almost personify those brands in the way they interact and talk about them. Even how you follow them now on Instagram. You can follow a brand and it tells you its whole life, right? Yep. So that's always something I've been, I've been interested in. So after I'm together, we went our own ways. We always kept in touch. And now you're still doing the brand game, working on some cool stuff. But enough about necessarily the advertising aspect. Let's talk about the food game. 
that's kind of how we started talking again in a more of a in, in a regular basis. What is going on? What is prohibited provisions? And how has your experience from that advertising world prepared you for this new venture? Yeah, it took us long enough long enough to get there. So it took, <laughs> it took us long enough to get there, but it's yeah, exactly. I mean, that's what I'm passionate about is the food industry, the food world, because we're in such an interesting place right now, just from an industry standpoint, which we can get into in a little bit. Um, and I'm more than happy to dive into and talk forever about. But at the end of the day, what got me to where I'm at right now is when I was in Chicago, I worked for an amazing brand strategy consulting firm. And we did a lot of work with a lot of Fortune 500 companies, um, whether and a lot of them are in the CPG world. And so doing a lot of product innovation and understanding to a certain extent um, what drives people and how consumers think and feel and how brands can enhance that and how brands can ultimately deliver products that appeal to those certain emotions. And so from transitioning to that world into you know, moving out to Denver and I worked on a lot of other kind of fashion retail brands and getting more experience there, I always had this passion for the food world and the food industry and I've always had this internal drive to start my own thing. I've always had this entrepreneurial mindset which what I mean by that and not to just put it in the category of something people say is it's a to have an entrepreneurial mindset is when you're going throughout life you're always looking at things and you're not trying. It's just a matter of, I'll see a need. I'm like, that's an unmet need. That's something that needs solved. And so I've always had that mindset, but I've been trying to find the right thing that I'm super passionate about because at the end of the day, and you could spend a whole other segment on this, if you start a company and you're not passionate about what you're doing, it's not gonna succeed. And I know a lot of people have said have said that. It's true to the point because there's so many emotional ups and downs that you go through whether you have someone else going through it with you or you're doing it by yourself it is a struggle but at the end of the day I landed in this area of having a lot of experience from a branding standpoint and understanding consumer insights in the food world with the CPG companies that I worked with sorry for those on consumer product goods if for some reason someone's yeah yeah yeah, sorry yeah there's so many acronyms in the industry that yeah Yeah. it's a language of itself but you're right and it it goes it keeps going back to that brand aspect is like you should have to be passionate about it. if you're not then don't do it because it's like you're raising like a like almost like a living thing yeah brands like product line brand is like a it's like an organism in a weird way. If you're doing it the right way, at the end of the day, if you're putting in, I, I feel like I believe every entrepreneur hits that point where it's like, I'm all in on this or I'm not. Because at the end of the day, you're never going to create something that's successful if you don't go all in on it. You'll always have a foot out the door and you won't reach the true potential. But I finally reached a point where, for me specifically, prohibited provisions at the end of the day, the simple explanation is we're giving you a convenient way to cook more creatively. That's what we're all about. I started with the brand idea, which I feel might be very unique compared to solving needs and how people come up with a brand or a product. And that from my experience in the food world and my love for cooking and cooking creatively and it being a creative outlet for me, we've entered an area where cooking is actually fucking cool. It's not something that grandma and mom just do. It's something that people are interested in. They're getting creative and they want interesting and bold flavors for the first time ever. And you're seeing it in restaurants to a certain extent where people are exploring those flavors. They want the interesting different. But at the same time, right now, if you go into the grocery store from a brand standpoint, you have what I'm gonna call and I've worked for them and at the same time, like they serve a purpose. You have your grandma brands. Yeah. You have your tried and trues, Heritage your craft, right? Campbell's, Kellogg's, and they serve a purpose. And then you have this whole really interesting world of what I'll put in quotes of granola brands, organic, healthy, which serve their purpose as well. But 
no one is speaking to this trend and you look at your industry trend data of what's going to happen in 2018 for food at the end of the day there is nothing around there of the trend of creative cooking and having fun in the kitchen yes i understand that people want convenience and that's what we're trying to deliver but at the end of the day from a brand standpoint and differentiating yourself you can't go into the store until now and we grow large enough to have that presence hopefully in every aisle with different products and that's what i'm trying to build prohibited provisions to be is cooking's cool we're the rebellious brand of have fun we're not for grandma and that's fine we're for the modern age modern age chef that likes to have fun in the kitchen put some music on experiment flip the recipe on its head throw it out the window and just have fun in the sense of you know what tastes good whether you think you're a good chef or not experiment and enjoy interesting different flavors and get creative so here's me being devil's advocate on what you said that cooking's now cool is i could say and how would you tell me how you you'd answer this joel cooking's been cool there's food tv there's the food network there's multi, there's celebrity chefs Anthony Bourdain's made a life of millions of dollars being a cool chef. I mean, a lot of these chefs have created really interesting. I mean, maybe even like a lot of people laugh at Guy Fieri, but that guy's done a hell of a job branding himself. Yeah, I would. If, right? Yeah, so, if you. So how is it different than it has been? Guy when, Fieri, if you ever hear this, you want to switch lives? I'll take it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you, be, you become the mayor of Flavortown yeah. in a heartbeat. Yeah. So I'll, I'll bleach my hair. <laughs> Start wearing a bunch of like wristbands and sweatbands. Uh, he's a Raiders fan too, so I can't make fun of him because we stick together. But uh, so how is it different now? Because I have an answer, but I want to hear your answer first. So, so here's the thing is, I think what, let's take Anthony Bourdain, which again, I mean, my brand and what I'm trying to do is write on the type of people to a certain extent and the consumers I'm trying to appeal to watching Anthony Bourdain in the sense of, I would love an endorsement or I'd love to partner with Anthony Bourdain because he's in that world of interesting flavors, um, discovery, all that. At the same time though, is what, no brand has really done yet in the food world of as you walk through the aisles is giving you a feeling or a badge of I'm that type of chef. I'm that type of discovery food person. Um, and that's what really what cooking is cool is getting at and what I'm trying to get at. And so a lot of, to your point, yes, you're right to a certain extent in that people have taken a lot more interest in the food world and interesting flavors. But I'll pose this question. Right now, if you went over to a friend's house and opened a cupboard, you opened a fridge, you're in their kitchen, can you name one time in your life that you've opened it and been like, that person has that product in their fridge, that means they're that type of cook and they're into that type of culinary world? Mm, not... No, not really. Yes, but I mean, I might be an outlier because I work in food and I deal with food people, but I'm going to have to say across the board, not really. No. From a creative cooking standpoint, I to yeah. play devil's advocate, you open someone's cover and you see certain stuff, I could tell you, oh, they're really into healthy food okay, and they're a granola fair. person. Yeah. You cannot open Architects. a fridge right now unless you have my product <laughs> and really know what the brand's about. Open a fridge, open a cupboard, and see a brand and be like, they have fun cooking, they like interesting, different, bold flavors, and they like experimenting in the kitchen. There isn't a brand that delivers on what people find appealing about Anthony Bourdain and the food world and interesting flavors and why people go to your restaurants where the menu is kind of off the wall and you have exotic flavors. There isn't a brand in the grocery store that's capitalizing on that concept of when I say cooking is cool, I mean creative, fun, interesting flavors. And that is a trend right now. People want really interesting flavors. And when I say interesting flavors, it means different things to different people because in, in America right now, interesting flavors are ethnic flavors. Yeah. We're finding that the, the world is shrunk in regards to what you can get fresh and finally ethnic flavors are easier to get to. And we're 
introduced to this amazing profile of flavors we've never had before. But at the same time, people actually want to start cooking with those. Like I, yeah. I mean, people, guitar, people, whatever, like yeah. all the stuff. I I have people who have had curry dishes in restaurants where like this is just way too far. Like I I, I don't like curry. Me, yeah. I was like this. Yeah, and, and come up and had vindaloo curry garlic where I've intentionally flavored it where it's not as strong as a curry dish, but it introduces them to really interesting flavors and creative flavors where they're like this isn't as strong, and I can see whether it's mixing this in a hummus or you know, sauteing this and adding it to a dish to just give interesting flavors. And it's not as strong, but it gives a completely different creative, interesting flavor profile that they would have never used before. One, okay, so for we kind of glossed over a little bit, but, but it's prohibitive provisions is are flavored garlics. So, yeah, to give a structure to that in, that's one thing I'm trying to figure out the best way to communicate. At okay. the end of the day, again, I had the brand idea of giving you a convenient way to cook more creative prohibited provisions. Our first product is flavored garlics. Okay. We call it fine garlic mixes is what we call it. And you have cilantro jalapeno, rosemary thyme, basil and oregano, and vindaloo curry. That said, that's just the first product we're starting with. The idea of prohibited provisions and giving you a convenient way to cook more creatively will eventually expand into other aisles of the grocery store cool. as long always delivering on giving you that convenience in a way where you can easily make your dishes and experiment and cook more creatively. Okay. That's that's awesome. What one of the things that oh so my answer to the question I posed to you originally, like why you know it's always been cool, why now, why is it more cool to be a creative cook and all of that. And I think that food and access to what other f- people are eating has never been easier, especially with social media. Um, people, I mean, foodies, like there's people who make, I know them, people who make a ton of money just sharing food. I mean, the whole thing of eating with your eyes is like, it's so true. And now we're in this, you know, this digital world where I can see what Joel's eating, what Barissa's eating. She's a friend of mine in LA who's awesome food blogger. She will take these, she's great, made a name for herself kind of being the go-to for really cool new food. And then you start to say, oh, what's that? What's this? What's that? What's on this Pinterest? What's over here? It's this, you know, our parents had, what, the radio, TV, and big screen? And now we have so many different outlets on top of those to go ahead and find new, what's that, all these new flavors. Look at Bourdain. He's going all over the world, and you can get them in your, on your phone, on your TV, computer. So it's just sparking that interest more and more and more. And in a lot of ways, it's kind of when you were talking about like, you know, these ethnic flavors have never been so much more available. It almost feels like this this uh, rejuvenation or like second coming of like the spice trade, right? When people were just like, we're trading spices now. You can taste, you can literally taste our heritage through this dish. Yeah. And you're, you're completely right. I mean, from a technology standpoint, I mean, it's, it's open the you know, the world to a lot of different things. And so, especially too, from just one, obviously a marketing standpoint and all that, but like that aside, but it's, you know, getting into the world of flavors and different type of foods at the same time, I think we're going to hit a ceiling of you're starting to get to point two, where it's like, as much as I'm all about experimenting, trying new things, we're reaching a point too where people are just going overboard in regards to like there's novelty, right? Like you're oh, getting novelty dude. of the combinations and things like that. Which let me just tell you <laughs> my my biggest thing, and I appreciate the craftsmanship, but I always make this joke when I go to certain places, and it's like we serve only the finest artisanal craft cocktails. I'm just like, oh my god! And I look at the menu, and and it's like they'll burn sage over your drink, and I'm like, I just want a drink. I don't want a seance, like. You're right. It's going to this novelty aspect. It's almost comical of how niche you can get. Yeah. But even to evolve it to that, I mean, you're getting combinations where, like, people are literally just putting them together for the Instagram worthy of it. You know, to a certain extent of, like, you got to do it for the gram, Joel. (laughs) Do it for the gram. It's a thing, but I think in the food world, it'll eventually hit a ceiling where it'll come back down and people will settle still in this world of interesting whatever. And it's not just the novelty of it, but it's more of 
back to whether it's flavors or items and things like that that marry really well together that you would have never expected. Um, but to your point of like from a spice trade aspect, I mean, you're exactly right to a certain extent and from my side of, I mean, I came from the brand world and the marketing world. I mean, at the end of the day, like my idea started from a brand level. I had to figure out all of the manufacturing and yeah. things, the supply and the things. But at the end of the day, we live in a world where as much as, you know, I'm not going to say that was easy. It's easier than what it would have been 20 years ago or even 15 years ago. One of, my, one of my previous guests, Ryan Woltz, who created these Eden micro gardens for inside your home, um, he said the same thing. And especially about when it goes back to the, the Denver tie-in, he goes, dude, you can find mostly anything you need to find for manufacturing here in the city. Again, it's not necessarily maybe like like food related, but when it comes to manufacturing, he's like, dude, materials, whatever, you can find pretty much anything here. And he used this my Yeti coaster cup cup as an example. He's like, oh, I can tell you who to get that from. And also, I mean, to build in, maybe this will switch into a different topic we'll talk about, but I mean, to build off of that in just regards to thinking about your comment on the spice trade and ultimately getting at the point of, you know, we live in a world where things are becoming much smaller, so to say, or you have easier access to things. There's a lot of conversations I've had in the food industry, in the food world, um, with a lot of friends um, that own other companies, which at the end of the day, if anyone's thinking about getting in the food industry, Obviously, Colorado is a great place for it. I consider the front range here, the Silicon Valley of food startups, which we may talk about in a little bit, and the reason behind that. But what's really interesting in the sense of this huge trend of local, 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 which is very prevalent, um, one, of some, one hypothesis that I have, and one thing that I'm seeing is our concept of local is changing in the sense of, yes, people want local and people will support local in regards to, I manufacture everything that I make here in Denver and a lot of my friends do the same thing or they might source things from from here in Denver. But at the same time, I firmly believe the idea of local is gonna expand to a global sense in that I have really good friends that source their coffee the company's called good trip coffee amazing make cold brew at home for yourself super easy amazing concept very delicious but they're capitalizing on the idea of local in that they source it from specific farmers in nicaragua and the idea of local is going to be something that's actual global so people want that story still but local isn't literally tied to where you're at specifically in Denver. It's the concept and the bigger idea of I'm supporting local. Local could be in another country, but I'm supporting individuals that you as a consumer can relate to. And I think that's where things are going to evolve in regards to this whole huge local movement, people wanting local sourced things. You're always going to have certain consumers and certain individuals that want that right in my backyard. But I think for the mass majority, you're going to end up getting people who view local from a global scale. That's really interesting. That's that's a good, that's a great take. And I think when, like you said, people want things that are in their backyard. I mean, I hear all the time, like, where is this from? What's it going? I think what it boils down to, and maybe this is a different way of saying what you just said, but they want transparency in that chain of where things are coming from. It doesn't have to be in your backyard, but they want to know, like, the whole chain of command from, you know, from pig to plate, from farm to table, whatever it is. Exactly. Yep. What has been, so how long, you started Prohibitive Provisions when? I would say I'm coming up on two years. Um, I wow. would, yeah, it's two years. I would say though, I had a year of development. So I feel like a lot of entrepreneurs, or at least for me, I had about a year, and especially the category I'm in, I'd probably say I had six to seven months of quote unquote recipe development, figuring out exactly what product I wanted to start with from a brand standpoint that fit with my brand and 
you know, getting that product to the standard that I wanted to. And then I had probably another six months just figuring out the whole industry of like, okay, I have this product, I have a standard, but where am I going to source my materials from? How am I going to get it manufactured? And figuring out a whole world that I had no idea um, existed and, you know, trying to put those pieces together, which that's entrepreneurship. There's fun in it. There's stress in it. Um, And so I had a year of just getting that all created and what I like to say, creating that wheel. Once it's created, it's amazing and it's a lot easier, but there's a lot of fun and stress in creating that. And then I've been in market for about a year selling. And my focus for this whole first year was, yeah, I had my friends and family that I tested product out with, which naturally they loved it. But this whole year has been proving out my idea, my concept for my first product, but then also the brand and the value that the brand brings. And so my first year has been very focused on that in, you know, farmers markets, special events around the front range and put a focus on that and gathering as much information as I can from my consumers and my advocates. And now this next year I'll be transitioning into, okay, how do I scale this up? Because you know, through the amazing feedback and my amazing customers and the people that have become loyalists and passionate about the product and the brand, you know, I know I have something. And so now I'm entering the world again, similar to what the first year was of figuring out the industry is how do I scale this thing up and getting into the weeds of that and understanding the hurdles I have to try and get over. Because at the end of the day, what majority of even successful entrepreneurs will probably tell you, I'm assuming, I'm not one of them yet, <laughs> um, is the aspect of anyone could have a great fucking idea. Anyone. That's something that I've heard some of my most successful yep. entrepreneurial friends say. And as you go to investors, to anyone looking for investors, investors aren't investing in an idea. You could actually have an idea that's average, but if you as a person and as a businessman can show, or a businesswoman, apologies, um, can show your skills and what you bring to the table, that's what investors are investing in at the end of the day. A lot of, yeah, uh, some of my, like some of my great friends and mentors have told me that, you know, everyone has a fucking idea. It's all about investors investing people, a product which comes after the idea, and the the process, like what's going to happen after that. Um, What's something that has been a delightful surprise to you about that this process so far like a something like oh wow that's actually it wasn't as bad as i thought it was going to be and something that you're like wow uh that was actually a lot it's just a lot harder than i thought it was so a positive and a negative about the experience so far man that's <laughs> see i'm a, basically i'm larry king already it's one of my fourth podcast and asking the hard questions when's your late night show going yeah. on um, I think my innate response to what, what are the two again? Remind me. What's the uh, what's a, like a delightful surprise about the process? Yep. And what's like man like like a, a negative about the entire experience so far? I think from an entire experience standpoint, and a lot of people who possibly listen to this probably have heard it before, but again, it's so true. And the negative of especially if you go into the food world for some like. Everything takes twice as long, if not four times as long as what you expect. You have these ideas, you have these goals from a time perspective and what you need to do, especially in the food industry. There's so much red tape. Um, Obviously, if you come in with previous experience on how to handle a lot of things from the operational standpoint, you might, you know, fast track a lot more things than what I was able to do. At the same time, that's a learning process, but I would say you should you know, always bake in that it's at least going to take twice as long to get to market. And when you're in market and you have this initiative, like everything, even today, I'm dealing with things like it's taking twice as long. And so that's probably the biggest negative, I would say. Um, There's obviously a lot more. Um, I think one of the bigger things that I can give from an entrepreneurial standpoint to think about if anyone's out there thinking about starting their own business and one thing I've went through and experienced is I've started this company by myself and everybody's personality is different, but I think with entrepreneurship specifically and a lot of people do it, 
it's a completely different experience from talking to other entrepreneurs of starting a company by yourself and starting it with a co-founder or someone else who's in it with you. And as much as starting with someone else might bring its tensions, might end up bringing its conflicts, at the end of the day, I would say if I had to redo anything and fix a negative, it's finding that right person who is as passionate about the idea and what I wanted to do as me, and we would have butted heads on a lot of things but I would at least have that other person to share the highs with and to get through the struggles with and also just have someone else to share the burden with. So that's one thing is it can be done. It's probably a different experience a little bit than if you do it with someone else. But I will say if I had to go back, I would try to find that right person um, to start a company with because if you start a company by yourself, I mean, it, it can be a very lonely process. And obviously, even if you... Um, put yourself in situations where you're learning from other people in the industry and getting feedback at the end of the day, it's really nice to have someone else who's in the same boat as you that you can bounce ideas off of. But again, it's all about, I mean, a lot of entrepreneurship is about the mental struggle, getting through the highs and lows. And if you have someone else to do that with, I could see it making the process a little bit easier because there are significant highs and lows no matter how great your idea is, no matter how well you're funded. And there's a difference between doing it by yourself and doing it with someone else. Oh, I just want my train of thought. Well, let it come back to me for a second. Uh, speaking of finding, like, those, like, sharing those moments with uh, going into, like, the food, the food game... Is there, have you found people, whether it's peers, newly found peers in the industry or, or even mentors to help you along the way and what, who are these people and how are they helping you develop this product and this, this, this brand? Yeah. So I mean, I mean that in general, I think from a mentor standpoint, if, if you're someone who never starts a company and you're in a career path that you really enjoy, if you're in a career path that you really enjoy and from a mentor, mentor standpoint, I recommend anyone looking to find mentors in general because throughout my career, whether I was seeking them or not initially, I ended up being fortunate enough that I had certain people that played a mentor role, whether they realized it or not, in my branding and marketing world. And in the sense of I learned certain skills from certain mentors and other skills from other ones, but having that from just bouncing ideas off them and helping them push you to achieve certain goals is a great thing to have, whether you are getting into entrepreneurship or just pursuing your career path. In my specific situation of getting into the food world, this goes back to an earlier statement, is if you're starting a food company, I will say there's a lot of probably great states and places that to start a food company, and I don't know the intricacies and the culture of every place. I know a lot of great companies that are located in a lot of different cities. What I can vouch for is here in the front range in Denver and back to my statement of I really feel like it is the Silicon Valley of food startups. You have so many different food companies from startups to established companies as well. You have Naturally Boulder up in the Boulder area, which is an amazing organization to be a part of that shares ideas, that has monthly meetings. Um, and it's not just monthly. I mean, I'd say they're probably bi-monthly um, on certain topics. And then you have recently um, created Colorado Food Works as well. So that's in Denver. Um, naturally, Boulder tends to be a little bit more up in the Boulder area. You have Colorado Food Works in Denver. And those are just two fairly big organizations um, that you can tap into that are super you know, inexpensive to go and participate in. And it's everyone within the food industry is open to sharing ideas because almost like to a certain extent, the front range here, everyone's been in the same situation. When you move out here and don't know anyone, everyone's been in that situation and they're open to you and to invite you in, give you a chance. And the food community here 
and Denver's the same way. So I found some mentors through that as well um, in regards to people who have mid-sized growth and that have gotten series funding that are now giving me advice of how to possibly grow organically, if that's what I want to do, or possibly find those angel investors um, to help grow a little bit quicker as well. Um, so it's an amazing community for that, a ton of options. And even outside of what's local, um, you have a lot of national organizations that are now starting to stop over here, put conventions on here as well. So if anyone's thinking about the food industry in a startup, it's not a bad place to uh, put your chips in regards to starting a company. Whenever we're talking about parallels, which you and I always throw around with different brands and what they're doing. Um, one of the things that you brought up to me was about the, you have a really cool parallel between the gourmet industry of food and kind of a parallel between that and the craft beer industry. And I wanted you to kind of go off on that take a little bit more. Yeah, no problem. So the craft beer industry, just because I used to work with quite a few brands in the beer industry and also, you know, loving you know, to drink myself, you know, I grew up where, you know, you had your domestic light beers were king. And I was a part of that phase where being able to drink, experiencing craft beers and what your initial craft beer brands like your new Belgiums and those main brands that first came out with what craft beer is from a larger scale standpoint you probably had a lot smaller ones that were even before them but from a national scale um, back in what I would say was the mid 2000s but really I would say around 2008 is when you really started to see the craft beer industry hit a struggle in your large domestic light beer companies really starting to feel the impact of their declining annual sales because of the craft beer movement and people's tastes changing. Now, fast forward to 2017 or even, I mean, it was starting to take place in 2014. Um, and the fact of the craft beer market is oversaturated. I like to think about it as what's always been the traditional, you walk down the hot sauce aisle or the barbecue sauce aisle. You walk down there and you look at it and you're like, well, which one do I freaking choose? So you walk into a store now, whether it's alcohol or the grocery store, and you go to the beer aisle, there's a huge dilemma, and you have a lot of craft beer companies that are scrambling to figure out how to differentiate themselves from a brand standpoint because consumers have gone from a, I have my tried and true beer that I choose and pick up to an aspect of, I wanna try something new and different, and so the consumer consumption behavior has changed significantly into that you don't have those regular beers that you drink, but that doesn't mean there's not opportunity. So what you're gonna find now is you're gonna find a lot of, I mean, also too, we live in Denver where I feel like every single day there's a new brewery that pops Dude, up. Dude, you can throw <laughs> a rock and hit two breweries. Yep. So, I mean, I have a theory in that I feel like your your beer companies in the long run that are going to survive are your local neighborhood spots that have suit that you're going to have your local neighborhood spots that have food and they have really delicious beer and they want to stay small and that's their niche. And then you're going to have your really large ones that still succeed or your larger ones. And the people in the middle that don't quite make it are going to end up not making it. But bringing it back to the food world is... The craft beer industry, I mean, was on a high for a long time because there weren't that many players. It's now gotten oversaturated. It's come to a point where consumers are struggling on picking options, and it's hurting those craft beer companies. The food industry, from a gourmet food standpoint, is you now have these gourmet um, food companies where the food industry is in a really interesting situation where we're not oversaturated yet, but you're all you're starting to get like in the craft beer industry. You're starting to get your Nestle's, your Hormel's, and your larger holding companies that are buying up your smaller gourmet food brands because no one wants mass anymore. Yes, they still serve a function, but they're not going to bring in the same revenue that they used to. They're not the main players. And so they're buying up these smaller brands 
and trying to get revenue from those companies that what people want right now, but we're eventually gonna hit a point whether you're selling hummus, whether you're selling flavored garlic or whatever it is, we're gonna hit a point where at the end of the day, these gourmet small food brands, you're gonna have so many of them that it's gonna become oversaturated. So it's gonna become down to brand of from a, you trying to get shelf space even, not even like, let's not even talk about from a, what are consumers buying, but just trying to get shelf space, there's gonna be so much competition. So what's really interesting is that I feel like to a certain extent, what I'm trying to do with prohibitive provisions is plan ahead for that. At the end of the day, I even think right now, if you're thinking organic and local, they're table stakes. We've reached the point that's fucking table stakes in the food industry. So when you think about that, it's looking at brands that are doing a really good job of expanding beyond that of what their brand's about. And so one here locally is Hope Hummus. As much as their stuff's organic, Hope Hummus does a great job of spreading hope is their thing. So it's it's more- Oh, that's good. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Right? <laughs> Over yeah. my head. Over your head. But brilliant. Yeah. Amazing. Great company. Amazing people. But their thing, it, it's more of, you know, that philanthropic type of tie to it. So when you're going there, they have that aspect of no matter how many organic hummus brands come into the market, they have that philanthropic aspect about it. So what I find really interesting is how many gourmet food brands are gonna enter the market or how many rebrands are gonna happen where it's like, at the end of the day, organic and healthy food and that granola movement that's happening, it's gonna be table stakes. At the end of the day, like my product, it's all organic, but that's table steak. It's not my main message, it's not my main brand. So I think the brands that are gonna succeed and get ahead of what's happening to the gourmet food industry before it truly gets to the point of where the craft beer industry is currently is understanding outside of organic, outside of local, your brand of what it really brings to the table are going to be the ones that succeed. That's rad. Um, Joe, I think this has been awesome. I think we've covered some great ground. I want to thank you again for being here and kind of sharing that. Where can the people find you online um, whether it's your own account or prohibited provisions. Yeah, so obviously our website. So www.prohibitedprovisions.com is our website. You can find more about what we're trying to do from a creative cooking and convenience standpoint. And then also our line of fine garlic mixes as well. Um, and then also on Amazon. Um, and then we're in a place now where we're trying to get into mass retail, but in the front range area, if you live around the area, we're at a lot of farmer's markets and flea markets as well.